0: Hello and welcome back to the Scottish Independence podcast and another Tuesday bonus episode. Can you believe it is just about a year since COP26 in Glasgow? Well, we're just about to have COP27 in Egypt. So this week's bonus Tuesday is an episode of our environmental climate justice show, Rising Clyde. And this one is called From Glasgow to Sharm el-Sheikh. The host is Ian Bruce.
1: Hello and welcome to Independence Live. I'm Ian Bruce and this is Rising Clyde, the Scottish Climate Justice Show. In this episode, we're going to be talking about COP27, the next round of the United Nations climate talks which begin in Egypt in just about three weeks' time. And to talk about that, we're very happy to have with us a a well-known feminist from Egypt, Fatima Kafahi, Uh, She is the one of the founders and leaders of the Arab Women's Network and indeed just last week she helped to organize a whole week of activities on climate justice and women in Jordan. Uh, and also from here in Scotland we have uh, Becky Kenton-Lake, she's the coordinator of Stop Climate Chaos Scotland which of course is a coalition of climate environmental movements here in Scotland that played a very important role in all the mobilisations we, we saw in Glasgow uh, just a year ago uh, for COP26. Fatima, I want to start finding out a little bit more about what the situation's like in Egypt now, because I think far too many of us know very little about what that situation is like, especially for yourselves, for activists in Egypt, for climate justice activists, women's movement activists, other social movement activists. With just a few weeks to go before COP starts, what is the situation like for you there? Um, Well, uh,
2: actually, I mean, there there are, Um, activists, environmental activists, and also uh, feminist activists. But there, I mean, there were few actually in Egypt. But with the COP 27, many people got very much involved, wanted to know what is going to happen with climate change, uh, and they wanted to participate. So there are a lot of them right now. But the, the sad thing is that there is a divide, actually, uh, because uh, the government does not want all the uh, civil society to go to Sharm el-Sheikh. So they prefer, you know, certain um, small number of, of sort of governmental, uh, uh, of governmental NGOs. So, so they are NGOs, non-governmental organizations, but they belong to the government more. They defend the government. So while in, in Cairo, there are many activists who know that they will not have a chance to go to Chermichi, but they are trying to do things on their own.
1: Right. And how, do, how does the women's women fit into that precisely? What, 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 what activities are you involved in and planning for COP27? Um,
2: like we found out, and also women who work with other disadvantaged women, found out that there is... You know, very small information or non information that are reaching uh, many women about the climate change. Um, you know, they don't understand what is happening now, although, you know, there is a rise of temperature and, and of sea uh, level rise and so on, but they, they can't really, they don't know much how to do about it. So the information is not really reaching women. What we're trying to do is that. It is the right of everyone, I mean, and also women, especially this advanced group, to know what is happening. I mean, it's not something, you know, for the people who are in science or in environment only to know. So this is one of the of the things that we want to do. The second thing is that uh, in all what we've read in the government uh, reports and, and, and plans, we don't see uh, gender, uh, there is no focus on gender there's no mention of because the the impact of climate change um it's not the same for everybody uh, it, it it's not the same for women it's not also the same for the different groups of of, of, of the population so we want actually to have a perspective uh, of of uh, of women a perspective of youth in all what is being produced actually Uh, for COP27 and not only, we're not only working for COP27, we want to, you know, these issues to be sustained even after COP27.
1: And just to to go back to that first point, I mean, you you talk about getting that information out to women who are not necessarily involved in the process. How how are you doing that? I mean, what kind of activities are you putting on to try and spread that word and, and, and get that kind of information out?
2: Uh, we are doing this uh, especially with the um, feminist uh, networks and feminist organizations who work uh, uh, locally who work with the rural women who work with refugees, uh, who work with displaced women and so on. so we' we're trying actually with very simple language to give them what what is going to happen and also just tell them it it is their right actually to participate with their opinions and and sometimes also they do things on their own because women are in agriculture very much in Egypt and they are very much affected actually. So we we, we tell them, but they're not in the decision making at all. So they're not uh, in the irrigation committee, they're not in uh, agriculture cooperative, so their voice is not heard. So we, we, we are trying to actually also talk to people who are in control that you have also to, to get women uh, involved. So that's the most important thing uh, in Egypt and in other Arab countries, is that the information is not really reaching people. And, yeah. and uh, I mean, th- there are, like, some information, but very, very complicated scientific that is not really uh, understood by the, the people, especially we have high illiteracy rate and so on.
1: Yeah, I definitely want to come back and talk a little bit more about those, uh, about how those movements are developing. But Becky, if I could come at it from the other angle, you know, what do you think were the takeaways from that, you know, how much, looking back at it now, how much did we achieve, how much did we not achieve, and what are we looking to achieve now at COP27? Yeah,
0: thanks Ian. So- I'll start with the positives, although so there, were, there were probably a lot more negatives, unfortunately. Um, but I mean, I think the posit- one of the positives is how the climate movement came together in Scotland. And we hosted people from all over the world who came to COP26. We put on a huge amount of kind of fringe events um, to kind of promote different messages around climate justice. And I think people in Scotland can be really proud of the way that they open their doors and everything to kind of civil society from all over the world. And I think that made a huge difference to COP26 to... Kind of show how much support there was for strong action. So that's definitely one of the positives. Um, Kind of inside the talks, um, the kind of headlines were really that countries just didn't do and didn't kind of commit enough promise. The the promises weren't enough to kind of slow emissions to 1.5 degrees. So their countries had to bring these commitments called nationally determined contributions, and that's the commitment they make uh, to how much they're going to cut emissions. And when you kind of added all these up, I think some of the estimates that it puts us on course for kind of over two degrees of warming, which is obviously absolutely devastating for for much of the world. So that was a real, um, real disadvantage and a real kind of disappointment from COP26. And the result of that is that countries have to bring new commitments to COP27 in Egypt this year. And so they have to update those nationally determined contributions. So we really need to see those strengthened this year the other side and if the, and if i can just so, jump yeah. in
1: there to be honest it's not looking very positive is it because i think yeah. so far we've got a really quite a small number of countries that have presented any kind of new ndcs these new commitments to cut emissions you know nothing like uh, yeah. what would be needed to redress the already inadequate uh, promises that we saw last year
0: yeah, absolutely. And the UK government is obviously kind of the outgoing president of COP26. It will pass the baton over to Egypt in next month. And the UK's NDC is already kind of looking pretty inadequate and it hasn't really build, you know, built on much from last year. So that's really disappointing because obviously the, the presidency kind of sets an example to, to the other nations. So that's, that's really disappointing. But on um, the other side of the coin to that emissions reduction is around climate finance. So as well as reducing emissions, kind of rich developed nations have a real duty to deliver finance to the countries that are most impacted by the climate crisis and who've also done least to cause it. So back in um, COP15 COP in Copenhagen, there was a commitment to, for rich countries to deliver 100 billion in climate finance. That's for kind of mitigation and adaptation from climate change. And that figure was kind of plucked out of the air and it's already kind of quite inadequate, but it's also not been delivered on. It was supposed to be delivered by 2020 and the rich countries have failed to deliver that that money. There's a chance that they might deliver it by twenty twenty three, I think, but it's still kind of inadequate and very, very late. So there's really real disappointment on that side as well, on the climate finance side. And kind of related to that is kind of finance for losses and damages. So this is the kind of climate impacts that are kind of irreversible, like people losing their livelihoods, their lives, their cultures, and the kind of rich countries needing to pay compensation and money to kind of help them recover from that. And that was also kind of not on the official agenda, which is a real disappointment to lots of Countries that have been calling for that
1: for many years, right? And that's separate from the, you know, the hundred thousand, the hundred billion. I'm sorry, mm. which never turned up anyway, mm-hmm. was meant to be to help people to adapt for the future effects of climate change. Mm-hmm. And what we're talking about here is loss and damage, which is actually helping people to deal with this, the, the the changes they've already uh, suffered, yeah. from droughts and so on and so forth. I think that's a good good moment to come back to you, Fatima, because just just give us an idea of what. These last 12 months have meant in terms of the climate crisis in North Africa, the Horn of Africa, because you know, we, we've you know, from the little information, inadequate information we, we, we receive here, it's clear that it's been a very, very difficult situation for many of the countries in that region, right?
2: Actually, there was uh, not so much concern, not even from the, the, the Arab governments. Um, to participate in so many, I mean, uh, 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 cops before. But because, you know, uh, the, this year it's going to be in Egypt, next year it's going to be in the United Arab Emirates. So the whole region, you know, especially the civil society, started addressing this, uh, which which is very good because, um, I mean, there isn't much of of governments um, uh, trying to actually to 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 get the uh, views of the normal people, uh, but they are pushing very much. Now we also have a say because we are the ones who are going to be, I mean, suffering more than anybody else. Um, uh, I mean, so I mean now really the so many networks and and different networks uh, like you know. Uh, people who are involved like teachers, professors of environment are are uh, uh, making, you know, networks, uh, discussing yeah, the whole issue about it. Uh, 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 regionally also we come together with Africa also because, I mean, Egypt is in North Africa as well as uh, other Arab countries. So we link actually closely because we have more or less the same Problems facing the same crisis, like, for instance, uh, agriculture. I mean, so many uh, African countries, the Arab region, depends very much on agriculture that is being affected and is going to be affected more. And women, I mean, women like, I mean, 60 percent of the labor force in agriculture, uh, they are women. And women who are really uh, cultivating the land, taking care of the irrigation, but they don't own the land. In the whole Arab region, only 10% uh, uh, of the land is owned by women. And this means that they, they really lack uh, I mean, the resources and uh, also they lack the power of making decisions. So this is very much annoying, but the good thing they started actually looking at the structural um, um, gender gap in that because women do not own because of the inheritance uh, inheritance system we've got. So it's like, you know, uh, really um, uh, the climate change has magnified the problems that women face and the gender gap that the whole uh, women in the Arab region face. So now they are addressing the structural things because this is what makes them actually suffer uh, more and more. So uh, uh, also they don't have uh, access to good health services. So and and uh, climate change is is really going also to affect you know pregnant women, uh, children, and so on. Uh, the, the the scarcity of food actually uh, is I mean it has a burden on women because women take care of the care economy, they are, uh, you know, responsible for getting food for the whole family and so on. With with the climate change and also with the, uh, um, we, we, I mean, countries like Egypt import a lot of food from outside. And now, I mean, we don't have because of also of Ukraine, Russian war and all this. So there is so much suffering from lack of, of necessary food Um, I mean, we have to really look into also gender disaggregated data because there is also a rise in malnutrition among children. I mean, we, we can't right now say related to the climate change right now, but it is up actually to be linked very much with the with the climate change.
1: You you mentioned two really important things there you know which is the the food crisis which is obviously partly a consequence of of climate change but also of the as you say the the war in ukraine and so forth and the drought which obviously is you know closely linked to that. You know how does that specifically impact on women? I mean what's the specific uh you know way that women experience that in egypt in, in in and in sudan and somalia and and so forth the countries of the horn of africa
2: mm-hmm. uh, yes because women are mostly left alone for instance in the agriculture areas to uh, to take care of the land and the cultivation and men prefer to find jobs in urban areas so they leave behind women there And women have to, they are the responsible, I mean, because there's so traditional norms and and culture and so on that put on the women uh, the burden of really uh, providing for the family, especially, you know, trying to get the food for the children and and so on. So with the scarcity of of food, it it is a burden on her uh, besides, I mean, or she does not have the power to change the mix of crops, of, of agriculture. Uh, she has uh, the power, uh, no power actually, uh, on decisions of, of uh, irrigation that must be adopted because of climate change. So she finds herself in Egypt and in other uh, Arab countries like in Sudan and and, and and so on. So there is a problem of how to really manage all this. If, if nobody is... Uh, reaching her with, you know, simple technology or giving her the chance of taking decisions of how to really adapt in terms of of agricultural mix, uh, crop mix of of irrigation, of, uh, uh, you know, uh, using new uh, sort of organic uh, fertilizers and, and all these details. She does not have access to it. And at the same time, she has to provide for the family as well because also men migrate and another thing that the whole arab countries also suffer from is the armed conflict we have armed conflict in in, in libya in yemen in in uh, now in iraq every i mean in so many arab countries and and usually this also is a, a burden uh, because there are so many displaced women actually because of the armed conflict that they have also to move from the places they are in to other places and they face also violence because there are tension among, I mean, with very small uh, resources, there are tension among, you know, different groups like ethnic groups and so on, and usually it's taken, you know, out on women in 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 terms of of violence and, you know. Uh, um, trying to, 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 to make her immobile, also no mobility, uh, trying also to push her away from having also uh, to be, uh, you know, taking some of the resources for herself and her family as well.
1: Becky, let me, let me come back to you again on this because clearly in the face of that, those really, really difficult and uh, you know, distressing conditions that a lot of people have to deal with uh, in, in the Arab countries and in, in North Africa, I want to come back to what those of us climate activists and the wider civil society in the North should be doing, should be thinking about. And, and maybe we could start with that point that because the, the, the Scottish government took a little bit of initiative. They said they themselves said it was a small initiative mm-hmm. to try and get the ball rolling on this loss and damage finance. They took that at Glasgow and they've been trying to build on that. Tell, tell us a little bit about what it is that the Scottish government's been trying to do and, and, you know, what What do you make of that? You know, is it really going to go anywhere?
0: Yeah, so the Scottish Government um, at COP26, they were the first country to announce funding for climate loss and damage, um, which was obviously very welcome and um, it was a kind of quite a symbolic gesture to kind of be the first country and what we are hoping is that it kind of sets an example and kind of shows leadership on this issue ahead of COP27 and kind of encourages other rich nations to do the same. because. I mean, like, yeah, like the Scottish Government themselves have admitted, it's it's £2 million, which is, is kind of nowhere near our true kind of, um, the true amount that we owe because of our kind of the climate damages that we've caused. So we're really keen that, that other countries kind of follow Scotland's example, but also commit more like their fair share of, of the finance that, that countries are due. Um, so, I mean, loss and damage is on the official COP27 agenda this year. So there's a bit more hope, but I think there's still a lot of a lot of doubt that we'll actually end COP27 with a proper commitment to loss and damage finance. So I think the best thing that people is, in Scotland can do is kind of continue to kind of talk about this issue and talk to it, talk about it to your MPs and MSPs. And we're going to try and, you know, keep it a real live issue um, in Scotland and, you know, try and try and kind of encourage the Scottish government, to, Scottish government to use that example to encourage others to do the same
1: more widely than just the Scottish government's initiative. I mean, there's been a bit of talk about reparations, haven't there, climate reparations in the movement. I, I, I want to, can you explain exactly what's meant by that? Is that the same as climate finance and 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 climate, you know loss and damage? or are we talking about something different there?
0: I think it's really a way of kind of seeing it. It's like a it's like a principle behind it, really. Um, it should be kind of embedded in in kind of thinking on climate finance really rather than being a separate thing. So, I mean, as Nicola Sturgeon said herself at COP26, like the loss and damage finance, it's an act of reparation rather than charity. So this money needs to be properly commensurate with the kind of damages that we've caused. And it also needs to not be seen as something like humanitarian assistance or aid, you know, it is a separate thing. It's it's reparations for the damage. So it's I think it is a bit of a shift in mindset to kind of normal kind of finance that we talk about.
2: Yeah, I wanted to ask Becky, actually, because women in in our region are complaining about, you know, the, the loss and damage is based on a quantitative, uh, you know, thing. Mm-hmm. And they're not re- really looking like women do a lot for and, and they don't get paid. I mean, all the unpaid work and all the care economy they are doing, they, they are not counted, actually. So mm-hmm. they are not on, on the winning side of, of any loss and damage negotiation, I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a lot of campaigning around, COP 20, around cops around the need to kind of take into account the needs of the youth and needs of women in all of these conversations. And there's a lot of people kind of campaigning on that. And I think there's lots of kind of thinking around climate reparations as it should go beyond finance. Like we're, we're kind of compensating for things that and it's not just shouldn't just be done financially. There should be other mechanisms as well. so
1: what, what kind of things are you thinking of?
0: i think kind of sharing of resources like other like non-financial kind of resources that kind of thing but um but yeah i think that thinking is kind of still at an early stage but i think it we need to be thinking beyond just kind of the transfer of, of straight finance yeah
1: yeah i mean fatima you, you talked a little bit about how different organizations and and movements coming together around the arab world and and in africa Do you have, like, a common agenda, a common set of demands or objectives that you want to present, either to actually get answers from COP27 or at least to make your demands better known at COP27? Uh,
2: Well, actually, we we did a study, I mean, uh, enumerating, you know, at the regional level, uh, what are the networks that really active. And I mean, there's so many of them, but but unfortunately, they're still working in silos. They're not. They're not coming together. Then at the governmental level, it's the League of Arab States that is really organizing or trying to organize Arab governments to take one stand uh, in, in COP 27 and, and COP 28. But they are not really also listening to civil society as much as they they can. So, but I mean at at because for the feminist organization in the arab region i can say that we're coming together Uh, because in in amman jordan uh, last week we had like 45 uh, feminist organizations from like 13 arab countries and we had a statement at the end really that summarized our demands our urgent ones and our longer term ones and we also for instance I think there is a, uh, you know a request for parity it, this is an international request for gender parity in the delegations that go to cop 27 or any of the of the conferences I mean we are very very far from it I mean I, I, I know a small number of countries have really reached parity but but in the arab region I mean it's it's all governmental thing and with very few maybe they choose one of the youth and men of yeah, women to participate so where 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 are you know women and youth in your delegation so that's you know our our question and also we, we we're not saying you know any women but women who really have expertise and also why aren't you telling our delegation something you know about gender so that they go also with the with the gender justice perspective when they go and negotiate because i'm sure they don't we also criticize actually un because of all this accreditation for for uh, uh, ngos to participate in the cop is very complicated i mean it closes like one year before the application is very complicated to fill actually so this is also i mean they really should the un also facilitate the participation of of the civil society so these are you know, the, the, the short-run uh, request that we are asking for. But we're asking for so many, you know, other things because we, we are saying, like, uh, the, the absence of agenda perspective in all, in, you know, uh, most of the, uh, the Arab countries' uh, plans, it is
1: completely absent. Will, will there actually be any protests in Sharm el-Sheikh or elsewhere in Egypt during COP27?
2: By law, demonstrations are forbidden. In Egypt, for for quite some years now, uh, what what we heard is that the government is assigning, like a building, for those who want to demonstrate. But I, I, a demonstration should be I mean heard should be seen by everybody and should not be, you know, uh, in in a in a small building, you know, where nobody is hearing or. So, the, the, also, the security situation is not very good, especially for Egyptians and the Arabs. I mean, so there are lots of also precautions being taken, you know, uh, in case of anything goes wrong for, for you know, any of uh, of the attendees of the civil society. But there are lots of, of statements about also the situation of human rights, and um, campaigns for for youth who have been in prison for many years for no charges whatsoever. Uh, So the the issue of of human rights has been very, very much addressed also, uh, mostly inside and outside Egypt.
1: Given that, I mean, we're, we're coming almost to the end of our time, but I'd just like to get a feeling of how you both think about the next steps, if you like, because... You know, Becky pointed out earlier that, you know, in spite of the quite big mobilisations we managed to have in Scotland last year, most people were very disappointed by the outcomes of COP26. You know, they fell way short in terms of emissions cuts, in terms of finance, in terms of all those things you mentioned. Can we really expect any kind of progress at all at COP27? And if we're not going to get any serious progress, what should we be doing? Whether that's in Egypt and the Arab world or here in Scotland? Alesta, maybe some final thoughts on that, each of you.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the most important things people in Scotland and around the world can do to kind of show solidarity with people in Egypt and Africa. This COP is, I mean, um, activists in Egypt have called a global day of action on the 12th of November. And so there's going to be a big uh, march in Edinburgh on that day and all places all across the UK as well. So just really encourage people to look out for that and come along if they can. And I think the opportunity we have this year is to kind of link up with all the different crises we're facing. So we've got the cost of living crisis, the nature crisis, you know, we've got unions who are striking. And, you know, I think it's just an opportunity for us all to come together and kind of call for action on all these crises. And and it's an opportunity for us all to come together again a year on from COP26.
1: Fatima, maybe just a final word on what you hope to come out of all this and what, what you think you can do and we should be doing?
2: Yeah, I mean, as Vicky has said, actually, solidarity is very important. We want to link, you know, with the, with the countries who has, you know, stronger voice than, than our voice. We want our voice to be reached. So we want to give you uh, the statements and we want you to talk about it. We want you. But the, the, the good thing is that, you know, it, it's difficult actually to shut up us because we say, no, we want to talk about climate change as much as you want to. And you cannot deprive us from this. Under climate change, there's so many things. The the economic situation, the human rights situation and so on. But the umbrella is giving us a space actually to have our voice heard. Maybe it's not going to be very influential now, but we're keeping on. We're not stopping. So that's what we're hoping for.
1: Well, thank you very much. I think that's an example for all of us. And um, I think that will, um, you know hopefully inspire people here to support that as much as possible. Thank you so much. We've been talking about COP27, the prospects for that, and more importantly, the prospects for the movement for climate justice around COP27. Uh, We've been talking to Fatima Kafagi, a feminist in Egypt, a leader of the Arab Women's Network, and Becky Kenton-Lake from Stop Climate Chaos Scotland. Thank you so much, and until the next time, goodbye.
2: Thank you. Goodbye thanks for listening to this bonus tuesday episode we'll be back again in our normal slot on friday see you then bye
1: now